0: very happy new year and a big welcome to episode 60 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vesey, none other than the cultural editor at Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, the Associate Editor at the magazine, and we are absolutely delighted to be back. As regular listeners will know, our mission is to try and make sense of the huge, overwhelming, massive culture on offer and pick out two or three things a week we think you'll really relish knowing about and enjoy. So we really do need your feedback and welcome all suggestions.
0: Yes, we really do, as the more we get to know you, the more we'll be confident that we're really profiling the books, plays, films, exhibitions, festival events and so on that really interest you. We're going to be making some changes this year to make this podcast even more tailored for you all. So as Charlotte says, do leave comments or email us with suggestions at charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk and put breakout culture in the subject box. But first... We're so pleased to have continuing sponsorship from Coots, a wealth manager and private bank with over 300 years of experience and expertise. If you're looking to start making that new year move you've always been promising yourself, it's certainly not always easy to find what you're looking for. So it's good to know that Coots has a real estate property service to help its clients access property on or off the market. The expert team at Coots could look at your whole financial picture and assess your needs, both now and in the future, in order to understand if they can design a flexible solution which is right for you?
1: Well, I must say, I'm pretty much dreading and putting off moving, as I've recently heard so many nightmare stories from friends about just how complicated it is to buy property at the moment and how tough it is to find what you're looking for. And if you do find it, you're likely to be pipped to the post. There's such limited stock and very high demand, especially in a nice desirable location within easy reach of a city or even a nice area of town. But whatever you're looking for, primary or second home, Coots could be the perfect partner to help. Experts at Coots could advise you so that when you find your dream place, you're in a position to move quickly, confidently and importantly, wisely visit coots.com to discover more as this is our first podcast of the year we thought it would be fun to leave our cold grey british january behind for a moment and head to hollywood to find out about an extraordinary new film that's going to be hitting our screens later this year so ed do you know who gatsby randolph is
0: No, Charlotte, who is Gatsby (laughs) Randolph?
1: Well, you might well ask, as he's the man (laughs) at the centre of an intriguing new film called, As It Happens, Who is Gatsby Randolph? That's uh, no, amazing. Okay. <laughs> it's produced by Londoner Alexa Jager, who's an actor, producer and film financier. And we're delighted to be talking to her in L.A. together with Gatsby Randolph himself. It's 5 p.m. here and already pitch dark, but no doubt it's a beautiful morning in California. So good morning, Alexa and Gatsby.
2: Yo, yo, yo. Good morning. Good morning. Good
0: morning. <laughs> we wish we were in L.A. with you. It's great to have you both on. This is a really fun film. And Alexa, you've described it as a mockumentary, I think Borat meets Entourage, both of which resonate with me. It's all based around on how you, Gatsby, and apparently you're not really called Gatsby at all, cracked the Hollywood code and became an A-lister. So Gatsby, can you start by telling our listeners your real name and why you decided to move
2: to Hollywood? To give you the backstory, I grew up you know, in Memphis, Tennessee, and my, my government name is, is Kobe Randolph, and I, um, we're I like the s- idea of a government name. I'm going to start. So, <laughs> yeah. My name's Ed Bailey. That's my government name. A government name, right? Yeah. Uh. So, but but you know, like you know, like a kid growing up in, in 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 you know, middle America and wanting to just dream bigger, just had this desire to dream bigger, and I wanted to come to Hollywood because you know you see these ideals on TV whether that be Cary Grant or Sinatra or Eddie Murphy or Richard Pryor, just these ideals I grew up to and I had a big imagination and I, and I just didn't think that, you know, no one around me in my local area was sort of getting, you know, my, my persona and my, my imagination. So, you know, just being a serial entrepreneur, I was like, how do I get to Hollywood? How do I get to Hollywood? So I started all types of businesses. You know, I, I went from, um, When I was 14 years old, I had a car washing business. Then after that, I said, okay, I want to take the money out of that and put it into whatever form of entertainment I can get into. So I became a DJ and a party promoter in high school. Then I, you know, uh, went to college and and opened up a nightclub and still doing all that in hopes that that would one day bring me to Hollywood. So I started managing some artists. uh, Just the natural transgression is uh, from DJing, start managing artists. And then one day Hollywood knocks on my door and it says, Hey, you know, we're going to uh, give, you know, you a record deal for your group. And then I hop on a plane. I get here. This is like 10 years of hard work. And as soon as I get here, I think I have this million dollar, or well, I don't think I have this million dollar deal lined up and the first meeting goes great. And, um, we have to take a break and come back in for a second meeting. And when we get to the second meeting, this other executive walks in, who sort of, you know, uh, maybe woke up, woke up on the wrong side of the bed. And he was like, who is this guy? Why would we do a deal? And then I, I think I'm gonna get a million dollar deal. And I see the deal gets balled up, thrown in the trash, quite Hollywood story. And at nine o'clock at night, I'm homeless with nowhere to go. And so the journey of, you know, Gatsby Randolph begins. Brilliant, well, uh,
0: we're gonna have words with this music executive, because he's clearly got no taste whatsoever. <laughs> but our listeners haven't seen the film, Uh, But basically, it's your social media, Gatsby, cleverly knitted knitted together with dramatised interviews. But Alexa, talk us through how you set about making the film, because I don't think, first of all, it's interesting how you and Gatsby came to meet each other, but also I don't think Gatsby set out to kind of make this film in this way initially.
3: Yeah, we met a while ago, and I just I just thought that um, after all of the doom and gloom we've all been going through, that uh, it was such a refreshing take, so aspirational, so inspiring. Um, he's so positive, and has a real sort of can-do feeling about it. Um, when I met with a British actor in London who was the star of Pennyworthy, the TV series called Hainsley Lloyd Bennett, he was talking about how He'd been talking to his friends at school and he was talking about racism. And was it in your head or was it in society or was it both? And he said watching this film made him feel like he could take over Hollywood and, and gave him this positivity. And so um, I immediately wanted to get involved in it.
1: Going back to you, Gatsby, you know, having had a sneak preview of the film... I think what's most compelling about it is just how brilliantly you, you persuade everyone, particularly Hollywood A-listers, that you're a celebrity yourself, which is what's at the heart of this film, that you just pose as a celebrity and everyone just believes it. Um, it certainly took a huge amount of charisma and skill to pull this off. But somewhere in the film, you sort of explain how you did it, because you, you say somewhere that you understand the interests of the 1% so tell me, tell, I was really interested to know what, what you mean by that.
2: I wouldn't say that me understanding the interests of the 1% is directly uh, how I was able to pull this off, even though that's a sub theme of the movie that I will explain. But um, the main takeaway of how I was able to do, uh, accomplish what, what we've done, is that I truly believed that I was what I was and I am what I am. Because authenticity is the, um, it, I think authenticity is the most potent frequency that exists in the world. Most potent energy, uh, energy is authenticity. So I can't fake what I'm really not. So I said, okay, what are the things that I naturally you know, have interest in. And then let me align those things because we are in Hollywood where there is a big part of the 1%. And mind you, I'm trying to get into the rooms next to the people who I believe can make my dreams come true. And a lot of these people were part of high society. So to understand that, you have to go back to my my, my past, my childhood. My grandfather was a very famous veterinarian who who specialized in uh, large animals. So we grew up with horses, right? I, so my grandfather had a lot of horses. My mom had a lot of horses. And I grew up knowing how to ride horses my whole life. So through just using... Now, when I was a kid learning how to ride horses, I didn't know being an equestrian was something that was necessarily part of high society. So it took me as an adult going back to do research on what these ideals of high society was and what are things that I naturally knew how to do and how to relate these two things. So then I said, okay, boom, I know how to ride horses. Then I said, okay, you know, uh, let me get into fashion. You know, so I went to thrift stores at a young age, and I said, "Well, let me learn about these designers because if I could, you know, find certain tuxedos and you know classic style, that's something that I can have." Once I had the superficial assets and talents aligned, then I said, "Okay, but when you have all the money in the world, what do you really?" are in desire for. What do you really need? It's really the things that money can't buy. So then it went deeper to understanding this human element of connection of, you know, how does a guy with you know, ten thousand dollars in his bank account connect with a guy like Jeff Bezos. It's going to be the things that money can't buy. And but at the heart of it, though, once we got past the superficial tuxedo and we got past the, the fact that we have the similar hobbies, then we I got to what really mattered, and that was you know me connecting with you on a human element and doing the things that I know are going to make you smile. You know, oddly enough, uh, one of my tactics is you know you you tell somebody something about yourself. For over a minute, they're going to get bored very quick. But if you inquire about something that's about them, especially something that they don't think you know, so if you do a little bit of homework and research on who you're going to talk to, very quickly and ask about them, man, I talk to you for the next hour.
0: This is all about you, Gatsby. So let me ask <laughs> you the, the more questions about yourself, okay? Because I think that I've heard that the film uh, has been submitted uh, to BAFTA, and also that it was long listed for an oscar which is an amazing achievement you've also got just to whet people's appetites you've got jay-z in it you've got beyonce you've got reese witherspoon Steven spielberg Graydon carter and my personal favorite somebody i'm mildly obsessed by kate beckinsale oh <laughs> I, love, <laughs> Ooh, I love I you love, it here her, <laughs> i love her instagram just, okay Kate. Okay. If, if you can introduce me to kate beckinsale everything will be <laughs> um oh uh but uh it's it's incredible so uh, what gave you this? Co- how do you, how did you busk your way into their company?
2: London, listen up, because no one's going to tell you this. So I'm going to give you, let you in on something.
0: You could turn this into a best-selling book. We're
2: all ears. <laughs> okay, we're all in. So the one percent lives on a calendar, and it's a global calendar. And because it's all about access and information, how do you know where someone's going to be? How do you know where the people who you want to meet? most times when you meet like your favorite celebrity or a person who's a public figure you think it's i don't know a 1 in a million chance right but it's only 1 in a million if you don't have the information so what I started to do early on on my second day in LA when I knew I needed to be in the rooms of certain people I had to find a way to intercept the information um to know to know where to be and I, when I did that I did a little research I was able to put together Uh, i call it the billion dollar calendar. That's going to be the same people at every event leading up into the Oscars. So all I had to do was put myself on that calendar and just live on that calendar. And it didn't matter who you were, you were going to see me every time you left the house. So for me, it was like, okay, if I want to be, my trajectory to be where I want to be in 10 years, I have to treat myself and act like that and move like that today when I have nothing. And what you start to see is, you start wielding your reality because your reality starts to catch up with your perception. So on day one, when I first met whoever, Kate Beckinsale, Steven Spielberg, I mean, I probably didn't have shit. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't nothing. But then by week two, because I was doing it every day, everybody was like, yeah, this guy's the guy. He's the guy. And then those relationships became real. And then I turned those relationships into business opportunities that eventually led to a movie. And now, boom, it's on a long list for the Oscars or, you know, being considered for the BAFTA. So that's sort of the process that I've known. And I'm just honest enough to say how it is. But I think this is the formula that all of the greats have done in the beginning. You know what I mean? Where
0: can we see this film?
3: The film will be coming out before June, theatrically, in the U.K., and it'll be on streaming platforms. So we will be announcing the exact date any day now. It's very exciting, it's
1: up for BAFTA. There's just one thing I really want to ask you, Gatsby, before we let you go, there's this, uh, obviously the whole film builds up to you getting into the Graydon Carter, you know, uh, Vanity Fair after Oscar party. There's a really good scene at, at that party, you know, you, you 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 borrow an Oscar and you and then you say this great line, you go, When you've, about having that Oscar in your hand, you say, when you've got the money in your hand, no one asks you how you got it. They just want to know that you've got it. And I I find that ultimately, you know, a pretty depressing, damning summation of Hollywood's values. And I wonder what your appetite is for Hollywood now, Gatsby. You know, do you want to stay there?
2: For me, you got to break down to rebuild. So in my journey of discovering my dealing with the need for validation, it led me to be just a vessel and representative of a lot of people's insecurities through this journey, and, and that led me to be, you know, able to crack this code. I understood that we that is a sad theme and an ideal and the superficial, you know, uh, temp- ingredient of Hollywood. And the only way I'm going to change it if I understand it, break it down. Show the people what it is, and then rebuild from scratch so mm. that's that's my goal oh, so like what my next? goal is I'm trying to be the next Walt Disney, and then there's just other film projects there's other stories I want to tell uh the Gatsby character in his story is actually a trilogy there's going to be a prequel to this called Kobe, and it's based on you know what I did before I actually got to Hollywood that inspired me and then the aftermath and the sequel and this sort of where these characters go afterwards. So that amongst other things. But like I said, the the goal is definitely to uh, now that we're here, my goal is to rebuild.
1: Well, it's brilliant. And, you know, huge congratulations. And, and what a thing to pull off. It's just fabulous. It really is a great way to cheer up a dull January day. So it's absolutely fantastic. So look out for everybody. It's called Who is Gatsby Randolph. Brilliant. Thank you both so much for coming on and telling us about it. Thank you. Uh, uh,
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us for sure.
0: Our next guest needs no introduction, particularly to any fan of the epic historical fiction. Kate Moss OBE is a number one international best-selling novelist, playwright, and non-fiction writer, and her books have been translated into 38 languages and published in more than 40 countries. She's written eight novels and short story collections, including the multi-million-selling *Longer dock Trilogy. The Taxidermist's Daughter, one of her gothic novels, has been adapted for stage and will premiere this April, so we're delighted to have her with us today to tell us about her latest book, The City of Tears, which is the second book in the Burning Chambers series. Good morning, Kate.
1: Good morning, Ed. (laughs) Well, hello, Kate, and it's an absolute honour to have such a prolific author on our podcast. And there's lots we want to talk to you about, but we want to kick off with City of Tears, which, as Ed said, is the next eagerly awaited instalment in the Burning Chambers series. Now, can you start by telling our listeners who might be new to your work about the series itself and your plans for it, as it's going to cover a huge chunk of history and indeed geography from 16th century France to 19th century Southern Africa?
4: Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> when you say that, I I start to think what are, what did I, what did I think I was doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Um, but it's yes, it's three hundred years of history. It's big, epic, old fashioned story, if you like, that is full of love and loss and revenge and tragedy and hope. And it travels the globe and it's the it's a Romeo and Juliet story, really. A Catholic girl and a Protestant boy and their generations and the enemies that they face. And it starts, as as you say, in Kakasson in 1562, which was The Burning Chambers, the very first novel in the series of four books it will be. And The City of Tears is the second in that series. It will finish in Franschuk in southern Africa in 1862. And it it is it is one of those stories where you're not quite sure who the goodies are, quite sure who the baddies are, but it's imagined characters against the backdrop of of real history and it's the Huguenot diaspora and it's a story about what it means to lose your home and find a new home Uh, what it means, you know, what loyalty means, who can you trust um, in the wars of religion and when you find yourself on the other side of the world in a place you don't know how do you you start a new life, if you like? So the City of Tears is number two and it starts ten years after the Burning Chambers Finished. And it begins with the family, the Joubert family, deciding whether they should go to Paris for a royal wedding. And anyone who knows their French history will know that the most notorious engagement of the Wars of Religion is the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, which follows uh, three days after the wedding of Marguerite de Valois to Henry of Navarre. And it's a wedding that's supposed to bring peace to France, but instead it sets off another 24 5 years of vicious and very bitter religious civil war. So, of course, As we begin with them saying, let's go to the wedding. It's going to be great to go to the wedding. Anyone who knows will be going, don't leave your castle. (laughs) Stay (laughs) home safe in the southwest of France and don't go to Paris.
0: (laughs) Um, Well, speaking as a Huguenot, I obviously have massive empathy for your characters. Of course. Um, (laughs) And we all love your books. They've uh, attracted praise far and wide. Uh, Anthony Horowitz said said it was historical fiction to devour and nobody does it like you. Now, what is your... Secret, Kate. I know you have a home in Carcassonne. Does it sort of infuse you just being there to help you bring these characters and indeed time alive?
4: Well, I'm going to tell you a, a new thing, Ed, that nobody ah, actually knows at the a moment. Scoop. But- a scoop on the back of uh, your your Huguenot heritage which is i'm i'm writing a big non-fiction book at the moment and all the way through uh, researching and writing the burning chamber series which i started to research back in 2010 i've been saying i don't have any huguenot heritage and i have discovered in the last month that in fact i do have huguenot heritage and i had no idea how did you find out kate well because i am i'm i'm writing a massive book on women in history yeah Um, and how easily women vanish from history and uh, why women aren't there, even when we obviously were there. Mm. Um, And I've used the spine of my own family because I discovered that my great-grandmother was a really well-known novelist in her day but has completely vanished from the record. None of her books were in print. And so I'm using my own family story as a spine to write this bigger book on women in history. And in there, in one of those documents, it... You know, I found this a sort of family tree that talked about the Lepard family who'd come across uh, from France as Huguenot refugees, and it's it's literally a paragraph. So I know nothing more than that. Going back to you talking about uh, women being
1: written out of history, uh, you've said the biggest compliment anyone can give you is that your books are page turners, especially as your books are pretty long. I mean, City of Tears is 541 pages long for a start. Do you think people partly love your books because your characters are deliberately very ordinary people, you know, those outside history, as you've said, just like
4: you or me, So, everyone can relate to them. I love a good old fashioned story. My dad used to read me those big old adventure stories, you know, Jules Verne, Ryder Haggard. Um, And I like that. I kind of like the moral landscape of those, that there is, you know, there is a clear beginning, a clear middle, a clear end. Um, There is the sense of justice and the world order being restored. And that's the kind of story I want to write, where people are turning the pages going, (gasps) Oh my God, what's going to happen next? But it is quite deliberate to tell the stories of ordinary people because for too much of history, uh, it has been only the history of a, a tiny number of people. So kings and generals and religious leaders, they're mostly men, obviously. But at the same time, the women who appear are the mistresses and the queens and the courtesans. And you forget that all the rest of us were there too. Because what I'm always asking myself as a historical novelist is, who would I have been? Mm. Would I have been brave enough to stand up against this persecution? Would I have been brave enough to stand up for my neighbours? And at the heart of the City of Tears, uh, you know, it's no good as a historical novelist if you just put the big history on the page. Because if people want the big history, they can read historians. And I'm not a historian. I'm just someone who loves history. And I'm curious about the past and what it tells us about now. So my job is to put a, a really heart-wrenching story, an imagined story of my characters, Minuju bear, her husband Piet, their children, her sister, all of the people that they care about and their enemies in front of the real history and then find the personal tragedy that brings it to life. And in the case of the City of Tears, it's a Sophie's Choice question. In the middle of this terrible, terrible night of massacre of the 23rd, 24th of August, 1572, a child goes missing. And that's the question. Do you flee to save everybody or do you stay and look for your child. 3,000 people were murdered in the space of about 28 hours. And there were 10,000 who died probably in the next two weeks in copycat massacres. So many people lost and going missing. So that's my job as a historical novelist is to put ordinary people's emotions and lives on the page and make sure that the reader cares and is asking themselves, what would I do?
0: You've got a long history of achievement in this area because of course you founded the Women's Prize for fiction. So I'm wondering if you're seeing more and more women turning to historical fiction because there are some very well-known writers in this area, not just you, but Hilary Mantel, obviously with Wolf Hall, Pat Parker with Resurrection, Maggie O'Farrell. Um, I read history and I'm wondering, do you think there's a sort of different way women look at history?
4: I mean, obviously in the case of Mantel, and that is a brilliant uh, trilogy, um, she very much is writing about the court. Although um, yes. the people good, who've good written yeah from the middle class into the court so that that is actually part of the the point of her her story yeah. that kind of social mobility but i think your point is generally right in that many of us and this of course goes for uh, black writers writers of color a lot of us are saying well let's just get 360 degrees of the world, not just a very narrow band of experience. And I was, when I was setting up the Women's Prize, actually, and, when I, and certainly when I was writing my my first big novel, Labyrinth, and I mean big in terms of how fat it is, you know, rather than anything else, I was trying to explain this to my wonderful dad, who, who died in 2011, and was very much an English gent of the old type, and quite traditional in many, many ways. But I was explaining that it wasn't about leaving men out or... Uh, denigrating the extraordinary things that have been done by men. It was more about putting a spotlight on the things that have been overlooked, the underheard and unheard voices of women. And my dad just looked at me, he said, oh, I see. So it's really just simply about getting a bigger table and more chairs. And I think that's what we're doing with historical fiction. Um, those of us who are women who are writing in this field is just saying, these stories are absolutely great, but let's have all the other stories. It's like there's lots of empty chairs at that table. So with the Women's Prize, we know that it's made an enormous difference in terms of the visibility of women's writing. We know that it is often used as a touchstone for many other areas of the arts. You probably know this, but it's very, very low. It's something like 5% of work in art galleries, in permanent collections, is yeah, by women, yeah. just, you know, yeah, tiny absolutely. things. So it's not just writing. So it's really always, for me, it's about trying to be positive about change. If you yeah. see something that you think needs to have a go, you might mm. fail, but have a go to make things better. Don't just sit there and moan. I don't have much time for people who just moan about stuff and <laughs> you know, do something about it. And and see if you can just expand stories that are being told. And the Women's Prize has, has done that and put millions of books into the hands of millions of men and women who love great literature.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much. What a great landscape we've covered.
4: Oh, no, it's lovely. Lovely to see you.
0: Many of you will have visited beautiful Compton Verney in Warwickshire, which is set in 120 acres of beautiful parkland, designed in 1768 by Capability Brown. It's got a fantastic restaurant, a great shop. But it's also gained a reputation, obviously, for putting on some fantastic exhibitions, as well as having six permanent collections. To kick off its spring season in February, there are two exciting exhibitions, one showcasing the work of Master G, Coventry's first Indian photographer. Master G didn't come to prominence until he was 94 and just two years before he died. So just in time. This was in 2016 when he had his first solo exhibition as part of Coventry's bid to become the UK City of culture. Now Compton Burnie's staging a wonderful show of his photographs, including many that haven't been seen before.
1: Yes, and alongside that, there's going to be a celebration of nine years of Sky Arts' most successful TV series, Portrait Artist of the Year. The exhibition is going to feature over 120 portraits selected from works of more than 1,000 artists who took part in the competition and the Sky Arts TV programme since it was launched in 2013. It's curated by Kathleen Soriano, who is one of the programme's judges, and we're delighted to have her with us this morning to tell us all about it. Good morning, Kathleen. Good morning.
0: It's lovely to be with you. Well, it's lovely to have you with us, Kathleen. Now, what's immediately really fun about the show is it's absolutely packed with famous faces. have got Tom Jones, Hilary Mantel, Kim Cattrall, Stanley Tucci, Niall Rogers... Bernadine Evaristo, I could go on and on. Tell our listeners about some of the highlights.
5: Well, we've got all our winners from the past nine series represented in the show. One of the great things about this programme is it's been able to commission some great portraits for important museum collections in this country, including the Scottish National Portrait Gallery, the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool, but also the National Gallery of Ireland in Dublin. And we'll be bringing the portrait of Graham Norton that Gareth Reid made as his prize-winning commission over for the the exhibition. So we're, we're going to plunder the work of over a thousand artists that have made work for this exhibition over the course of the nine years, or made work for the competition, actually, over the course of the nine years. And I'll have... About 160 paintings in the exhibition itself, and uh, it'll be divided into sections. We'll start with, you know, the great Torah of all the winners, and then we'll move into considering portraiture as a genre more intensively. We'll look at famous faces, be it the musician Jazzy B or Bernadine Evaristo, the writer, um, or Robert Rinder, the judge that we all know from the TV programme. And then we'll look at personal styles of of the various artists. Some of them have been incredibly distinctive. And we'll have an important section, which will be crammed floor to ceiling with self-portraits, a real sort of Salon style installation. And we'll finish up by looking at the idea of how our artists have actually stretched the genre of portraiture quite considerably through the techniques, through the media, uh, through the uh, formats that they've used. And at the very end, there'll be a chance for visitors to actually decide which works they think were best from the three or so. Portraits that were made during the heats of the uh, programme. Because I know that looking at the comments on social media, um, people don't always agree with us judges as to who we think should be the winners each time. So it'll be interesting to see what they think when they see the works in the flesh.
1: And I think the other really interesting thing about these portraits is they're not all by any means um, by professional artists. Because the point of uh, Portrait Arts of the Year is so that it, it set out to unearth and encourage artists from all walks of life so you've got surgeons security guards you know absolutely everybody and some of those now establishing good livings as artists so can you tell our listeners a bit about some of the most hitherto unknown artists that are going to be showing their
5: work i think the the Program has actually been transformational for a number of artists, especially the winners. I mean, you you can there'll be quotes that I'll use in the exhibition itself that sort of explain just how how transformative the program was. I mean, I back in the last century, I used to be director of exhibitions and collections at the National Portrait Gallery, so I worked on the BP Portrait Award for many years, and as we know, that that has done a huge amount in bringing young and new artists to the to the canon, really. But what this program did is it spoke to amateurs as well and it's it's not just only released a huge groundswell of people trying painting or going back to painting after they raised families or had their other careers but it's also created this incredible sense of community and we found this particularly during the pandemic where we ran a three series actually of Facebook live portrait artist of the week programs uh, all of us sitting at home on our laptops painting along basically together where we were joined by a community of thousands of artists from around the world from south africa from australia from canada who would paint along in real time so it's it's not just revealed this body of amateur artists that have suddenly developed a, a, a confidence in, in their craft. and But it's also created this incredible community that has been brought together of, of artists. If you look at the hashtag on Instagram, P-A-O-T-Y, or portrait artists of the year, you will see the richness of support that exists now for this body of artists.
0: So tell us about the judging process.
5: Well, we start at the very beginning by looking at digital submissions. And we pick around two to three. 300 artists who then go forward to feature in the programme. And in the programme itself, I work very closely with the other judges, Taishan Schierenberg, an artist who I first met when he was in his early 20s, when he actually won the BP Portrait Award. And also Kate Bryan, who is director of Soho House Art Collection, um, as well as making lots of fascinating um, TV programmes about art and artists. And our criteria really, just to find the best portrait artist, someone who can, you know, capture a likeness. And I know it's a cliche, but to something a little bit more, but we're always looking for someone who's pushing the genre just that little bit further. So they're contributing to the development of portraiture.
0: So I actually had a, I had a portrait uh, done of me by Sky Arts to promote the new series mm. by an artist called Tom Mead. Yeah, Tom, Tom was one of our great
5: artists and he, I'm actually hoping to borrow, oh, I'm planning to borrow his portrait of Jazzy B, which was commissioned for the Roundhouse. How did you enjoy that? How was
0: it, what was it like sitting It was great. It was me and the love of my life, which is my dog. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, we're commemorated together forevermore. So it's like uh, buy one, get one free. Not that I bought the portrait. Uh, So it's me and Pepper sitting in a chair and I love the process. I mean, he did it from photographs, but I'm obviously, you know, I've been asking the National Portrait Gallery to hang my portrait for years now. And they've studiously ignored (laughs) me, despite being, uh, you know, the world's longest serving arts minister. But, you know, if you want me to lend me, picture for the exhibition, Kathleen, if you can't get Jazzy B, I'm there for you. Well, I'm glad to know that you sat. I've,
5: I've, I've, one of the things that's happened to us judges over the course of the years of making the programme is a number of the artists have painted us. And of course, we also work with um, Jane Boatwell and and Stephen Mangan, who present the programme. Oh, yes. and, and it's yes. just a complete joy being able to get together with them for um, about two full weeks every year just to talk about art and portraiture. It's a pleasure. Even though Joan does get a little bit bit sort of feisty now and again. She doesn't always agree with our choices and she likes to fight with me. But you know, I'm up for that.
1: I mean I think what's so great about a show like this is is, you know, in in the past I've written articles about the sort of death of portraiture in a way and how sad it is that now with selfies and, you know, everyone taking photos on their phone every five minutes, there's not the same kind of thrust and need for a family, say, to get a portrait done of their children or whatever it is. But this show is sort of really revitalising all that, isn't
5: it? The show has completely revitalised it and as Sally Shaw from First Sight you know, who won the Art Fund Museum of the Year Prize recently said to me, she said, you know, we talk a lot in this business about the democratisation of art, but this programme really does it. Mm. It really does. It means that anyone can have a go. It doesn't mean that quality goes out the window. You know, no. you've only got to come and look at the exhibition to see that, but it democratises it. And one of the ways in which I, I sort of give the example about how it's done that is in the very, very first show that we ever filmed. I remember standing in front of a painting and saying to Joan Bakewell, I love this portrait. It's full of narrative. Joan looked at me and she said what are you talking about? It's not a book. <laughs> uh, but now All of our artists, including Joan Bakewell, will talk about how a painting's got narrative. They'll talk about palette. They'll talk about ground. They'll talk about composition. So they've got the vocabulary now to talk about and to analyse their own work and the work of others. But I think what this show has done is it's it's allowed everyone to become, albeit an armchair critic, who sometimes can be a bit sort of vociferous on social media. But that's great. People are talking about it and people are expressing their view. And they've also... I think, feel now that they have permission to to like something or not like it, to, to, regardless of what the ex- so-called experts are telling them. And I think that's great. Two more questions quickly.
1: First of all, has Joan Bakewell had a go herself at it?
5: Yes, Joan took up um, watercolour painting during lockdown ah. because she was on her own and wanted to have a go. And I know that she spent many, many long hours on the phone and on Zoom to Ty, asking for some of Ty's top tips as to what she should be doing. But anyway,
0: she's, she's not doing badly. So I think very telling what you said about the revival of portraiture and the role of Sky Arts, because, um, uh, you know, we forget how important uh, the channel is. And I'm so pleased it's now free to air.
1: Well, they came on the podcast, didn't they, ages ago? Way back, they came
5: on. and
0: We did. when they yeah. When they were going free to air, we did.
5: Yeah. Yep. I, I have to say, working with them for the last nine years, Sky Arts are inspirational. Yes. Their hearts are so in the right place. They really genuinely care. It's not just a commercial activity, and I think they've done incredible work over the, uh, over the last nine years or so, and especially since going free to view. I mean, we've obviously now accessed so many more people than we ever did before, and um, you know, over over one point five million people watching every show is is pretty wow. impressive and oh, that's, that's portraiture portraiture getting out there I think.
1: Well how very uplifting what a great way to start the year thank you so much. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week but please do send us suggestions and comments so we can make this an even better podcast for all of you. Either leave comments and suggestions with the podcast or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk and put Breakout Culture in the subject box. Thank you so much again to Coots, our sponsor and do visit the website Coots.com and discover if it's bespoke borrowing solutions could help you achieve that balanced life we're all in search of though we do have to remind you that your home may be repossessed if you do not keep up repayments on your mortgage credit is subject to status and fees may apply
0: and don't forget the country and townhouse website where you'll find the magazine's weekly newsletter as well as our sister podcast house guests with carol annette and next friday a brand new edition of country and townhouse will be out As I'm sure you all know by now, our address is countryandtownhouse.co.uk, and to subscribe to the newsletters, just add forward slash newsletter. We'll be back again next Sunday when we'll be talking, among others, to none other than Booker Prize winning novelist Bernadine Evaristo, whose portrait we've already mentioned on this podcast and which you can see at Compton Verney from February. So don't fail to tune in then. Goodbye. Goodbye.